article that was featured in The Guardian. It was covered with this title. I have the best memory in the world. Mr. Mullen said he didn't always think much of his memory, really never thought about it. He was a biomedical engineering student. He saw a TED talk that influenced him to just start playing what he called some memory games to see how well and how good he was at remembering things. He recalled the first time he used a palace modeling memory game to memorize a grocery list of 20 items or more. He said he felt like he had tapped into a superpower. And from there, he started to push himself. How much can I remember? And so he started to play around with long lists of numbers and decks of cards. And then he realized my memory is good enough to compete with the best in the world. The first time he competed in the United States Memory Championship at 22 years old, he came in second place. He went on to win thousands of dollars, tens upon thousands of dollars. And on one occasion, he won $30,000, which he described for him at the time being a medical student as a lot of money. The average world memory champion can memorize an entire deck of cards in 15 seconds. Mr. Mullins in the Guardian article says his personal best at a world championship event is 15.61 seconds. He memorized an entire deck of cards. And none of that's the most impressive thing about the article that features Mr. Mullins. It's what he says at the end. And here it goes. Mullins says, you know, in the end, I really don't believe I have any unique talent, nor do any of the other people I've ever encountered at these memory championships. He says, I don't know anybody with a photographic memory. I've never met anybody at a United States world memory competition who looked at a list of items and memorized it right off. He said, in the end, every single one of us learn our techniques and work our techniques. In the end, it's really not a gift so far as Mr. Mullins is concerned. You know, there are some things that Christians need to remember. There are some things, and I'm not talking about grocery lists or decks of cards or numbers or Amazon wish lists. There are some things that you and I need to commit to memory and to put in our psyche, namely the word of God. The spiritual discipline of memorizing the Bible is not a spiritual gift, a talent or a hack for a few elite people. It's really for all Christians who want to please, honor and glorify God by lodging the word of God in their hearts. In a messianic psalm, Psalm 40 and verse 8, David says, I delight to do your will, O God. The word is actually written on my heart. David says, his law is in my heart. My steps will not slide. Psalm 37, 31. The psalmist says, your word I've meditated on so that I might not sin against you. I've hid it in my heart. Psalm 119 and verse 11. Christians in every age and at every point in life need to be memorizing the word of God, not just reading it, but hiding it directly in our hearts. Our theme at Lehman Avenue for 2024 is living by faith. And I bring that up for two reasons. In the first place, what we're going to talk about tonight, there may be some people in this auditorium. The moment you hear something like this, verses that Christians should memorize, you start reasoning, you start squirming and you start saying stuff like, Hiram, I've never been good at memorizing. I've got a learning disability and I'm really not the memorizing type. I just don't do that kind of thing. And maybe you can't, but maybe you can have you ever really tried to memorize the Bible passages? I mean, have you really given yourself over to it? Have you ever begged God to help you remember? I believe if we try, if we put our effort into it, this idea of living by faith means just that. Living by faith means that there are some things that we can't do without divine aid. But there are some things with divine help that we can do that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And perhaps that's memorizing and internalizing scripture. But here's the second reason why I bring up this idea of living by faith as our congregational theme before our lesson tonight. It's because as Jamry alluded to with the songs a moment ago, every one of the verses that we're going to look at tonight that Christians need to commit to memory 
is going to be based on faith. All of these verses are going to be about lodging these words in our hearts, making spiritual sticky notes for the soul, so to speak, so that we will remember these times, these verses in times of difficulty when we might want to believe otherwise. Hopefully these verses will stir our souls and help us to be the people that God wants us to be. We'll get these scriptures in our hearts and we'll remember them so that we can truly live by faith. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ, Romans 10, 17, there's really no better way to build up our faith than to rehearse over and over again in our souls and in our minds the very words we ultimately claim to live by. What I'm suggesting tonight as we go through the 10 verses that I've selected is not that we should read these verses a lot, which I think would be a good idea, but I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm not even suggesting that we highlight or underline these verses, though I think that would be a great idea as well. What I want us to try to challenge ourselves with tonight is to get out a piece of paper, to write down these 10 verses, and to memorize them word for word. Every family. What if you and your spouse, you just did this? You got you some flashcards and you said, you know what? We're going to memorize these verses together. And I'm not going to leave you in the dust. We won't move on to the next verse until we can both say it in our sleep. Your kids probably are going to beat you at this, right? But what if the whole family got together and you said, you know what? We're a walk by faith family and not a walk by sight family. We're going to memorize the word of God. We're going to get it in our hearts. We're going to learn scripture. What if you communicate it with friends that you have in this congregation? And let's just see where everybody is. Are you memorizing the verses? Ten verses. It might take you longer than some others, but we can do this. We were made to do this. The word of God was not given to us simply to be read as important as that is. It was given to us so that we might internalize it and live by faith. Now, there's one more thing we need to do before we get to the 10 verses, and that is I need to make the case for memorization. Maybe everybody doesn't need this, but no doubt there's somebody tonight saying to themselves, you know, Hiram, I'm not playing along with your little memorizing game. Listen, God wrote the word down for a reason. I have no need to memorize it at all. God wrote it down. And if I want to study it, as long as I know where things are, I really don't need to memorize it. By the way, there is no command in the Bible for me to memorize, or maybe we think so. And let me just say up front, biblical memorization is never to be abused. It's never meant to show off. So far as I can tell in the Bible, it's never even mentioned as a sort of teaching hack to be impressive, to teach other people. We never memorize scripture so that we can appear smart or educated or better than others. And yet I'm persuaded that the Bible, while it doesn't out and out come out and say you shall memorize, it expects us to and implies that we would. The Bible talks about meditating on the law day and night to be the blessed person and the successful person. Joshua 1, 8 and Psalm 1 and verse 2. The Hebrew word for meditate means to growl or mutter under the tongue, to say it over and over again until it becomes a part of who you are. How can you do that if you don't actually know those words? The psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day that assumes he knows the word all the day. But it's not just the psalmist. Think about the things Jesus said and then the things that Jesus did. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what helped Jesus, the perfect human being, to overcome? He had the book of Deuteronomy committed to memory and was able to use it three times in a row to defeat Satan by recalling the word of God word for word. If Jesus Christ, the perfect human being, had to memorize scripture and used it in his battle against the devil, and somebody says, I don't know any scripture by heart, with what do we plan to fight him? But it's not just what Jesus said, it's, it's what he did, it's also what he taught. He says, if my words abide in you, your prayers will be answered and you'll bear much fruit. John 15, 7 and 8. 
Jesus would be in dialogue with people and he would just expect them to know the Bible by heart. One time a lawyer came up to Jesus and said, what's the greatest command? And Jesus said, Luke 10 and verse 26, what's in the law and how do you read it? As if he expected to man, the man to know the Bible. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Jesus expected that people knew those passages. And if that's all we could say, that'd be enough. But here's the last thing in the case for memorization. The Bible throughout the Old and New Testament says certain things that assume we are going to get the words in our hearts word for word. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, parents are told, I want you to teach your children. When you walk by the way, when you sit down in the house, when you lie down, how could a person possibly do that if they really didn't know the scriptures? Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3 and verse 16. The Bible expects us to take its message and apply it to our hearts. Peter said, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder so that after my departure, you will always be able to easily recall these things. Second Peter one and verse 15. And so while there is no thou shall memorize verses. When you think about the idea of meditation, the example and the teaching of Jesus, coupled with all of these other verses that say you will have to have the word at a ready disposal in order to execute these tasks. I think we're well within our grounds to say Christians need to be individuals that memorize the word. I'm not telling you tonight you're in sin if you don't memorize. But I am telling you that memorizing might very well keep us from sin. And so here are the 10 verses. Number one. Psalm 37, 25. I'm going to mention the verses, make a few cases about why it's necessary for us to memorize these by faith. And then we'll go on to the next one and then we'll extend heaven's invitation. The first one is Psalm 37, 25. And here's what David says. I've been young and now I'm old. And yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. Show of hands in this room of anybody who has ever starved to death before. Anybody. You know, we use that phrase colloquially. We kind of use it as a figure of speech. I'm so hungry I could starve to death. And yet none of us ever really has before. But aren't there times in your life when the finances are low and things aren't going your way? We sort of pretend that we might. Does anybody else ever see the bills coming in and the blues coming in all at the same time? But notice David in Psalm 37, 25. Think about every word in this verse. David, he looks over his entire life. He surveys his entire existence. And David says, I've been young and now I'm old. What does that mean? God's goodness is not seasonal. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. God can't do that. He won't do that. He doesn't abandon. He's ever constant and faithful. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55 and verse 22. David says, I've been young and now I'm old. And here's what I know. God does not abandon his children. What if in times in your life when you thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm worried about provisions. I'm worried about God seeing me through. What if you had Psalm 37, 25 on your lips and you just mumbled it to yourself in times when you were pressed up against a wall? I've been young. And now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. It would build up your faith and your confidence in a God that says I've already taken care of those things. But I actually need you to trust me. Brian King's the director at the Florida School of Preaching where I attended. He taught all of my New Testament courses. He preached with me for a while at South Florida Avenue. And right before I moved here, he became one of the elders. Brian has this phrase. It's not his phrase. It's in the Bible. He says it about everything. I remember when I applied to preaching school and I was raising support in order to attend full time. And I said, Brian, I don't think I'm going to be able to go. I don't know if I'm going to have the support in time. Brian emailed me back. The Lord will provide. 
I've been with Brian when there have been times where there's a lectureship speaker that's sick and didn't show up five minutes before his speech. Brian, so-and-so's not here. The lectureship's going on. Brian says, the Lord will provide. Now, sometimes I've been the provision in those cases, by the way, but nevertheless, the Lord will provide. I've been in Africa on the mission fields with Brian, and we say, hey, we've got a situation over here in Nicaragua, and without fail. This stubborn confidence in God's habitual sustaining throughout his life without fail. Genesis 22, 8, Genesis 22, 14. The Lord, he will provide. Where do you get that from? Psalm 37, 25. You just survey your life. I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous. I've never starved to death before. God is faithful. Memorize Psalm 37, 25. Write it on your heart so you will never question his faithfulness towards you and he will not have to audition for yours. Here's the second verse. First Peter five and verse 10. First Peter five and verse 10. Peter talks a lot about suffering in this book. And towards the end, he gives one of the most glorious and faith building verses in all of the Bible. And first Peter five and verse 10, after he's talked a great deal about suffering, Peter says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says, in the end, you can trust God to sustain you through suffering. God will bring you out. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice what Peter says. Again, every word of this verse is important. Peter says he's the God of all grace. He's called us into his eternal glory in Jesus Christ. And after we've gone through it, God's going to see us through. What will he do? He'll restore. He'll confirm. He'll strengthen. He'll establish. That's who he is. The Bible says this about God all over the place. Joel 2 and verse 25. God says, I will restore to you what the locusts have eaten. Ask Job if 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 is true. At the end of his life, Job sees more flocks than his eyes can behold, more crops than he can get in his barn, 10 more children and live to see further beyond that more generations. If first Peter five and verse 10 had been written in the days of Job, it would have no doubt been one of his favorite verses because he knew God as a God who after you have suffered a little while, he will return again. What does Job 42 and verse 12 say? God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. That's the God you serve. When you're going through it, remember this God will see you through. Maybe this happened to you as a kid or maybe it happened to your children when they were small. They got hurt and they believe no matter how big the gash, how terrible the wound, if you kissed it, it would be better. Or if you had to apply ointment or peroxide or alcohol to something that they had going on, if you blew on it for whatever reason, they could stand it and it wouldn't burn as much. You serve a God who always kisses his people's boo-boos and he always blows when it burns. Listen to the verse again. It doesn't say after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will delegate an angel to do this. No, God takes this personally. He himself will supply the ointment that we need. He will himself. He's not delegating this to any other spiritual being. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and settle you. We need first Peter five and verse 10 if our faith is going to be built up. We need to know this verse so that we will know the God who doesn't quit on us. But here's number three. Psalm 23 and verse six. You probably already know this one. You may know this whole psalm. And if you do, it's a highly likely that you know it in the King James Version. I think that's the only way you can memorize Psalm 23, by the way. It's probably the most famous chapter in all the Bible. It's quoted and read at more funerals than any other passage I know of. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. But what we want for this sermon is the last verse. Look at verse six. David says, surely 
Goodness and mercy or steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verses Christians should memorize to build their faith. We should memorize passages like Psalm 23 and verse 6. What do we mean when we say this phrase throughout our lives? If it's not one thing, it's another. We typically mean that when we're saying bad things, they just happen. I've heard people say bad things happen in threes. You can just kind of expect negative things to happen. But what if we're like David? David says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Far from anticipating that negative things were simply his lot, David expected good things to always be his lot. He uses a Hebrew word, radaf, which means surely goodness and mercy will chase me down all the days of my life. What if we flipped it? You know we can. What if we meant when we said if it's not one thing, it's another, we were referring to the steadfast love of God. We looked in on our lives and we said, you know what? I've been so blessed. I just have come to expect that good things will happen to me and they will. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? Psalm 116 and verse 12. Surely his goodness and his mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's a sneaky theologian. He sneaks two blessings in verse six. Notice the text. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's for now. But then David says he also has me forever and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian, you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to be assured of his love. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You have it right now. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We need Psalm 23 and verse six. We need to be reminded of God's goodness that ever abides and sticks with us. You remember what Jacob said when he wrestled, wrestled with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32, 26. I will not let you go until you what? Until you bless me. And what if the goodness and the mercy of God is chasing us down? That's what David says is happening. And God's saying to us from heaven, I will not let you go until I bless you. And like children in a game of tag, once he grabs us. We depart from his presence, but only for a short time because he begins to chase us again. Your faith will be built up when you look at your life and the goodness of God in it, not as a long string of coincidences that may be a fluke, is certain. His goodness, his mercy, it'll chase you down all the days of your life and you'll dwell in his house forever. Here's number four. Philippians 1 and verse 6. In Philippians, Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing. He that began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And this is a faith filled verse that Christians, we need to internalize it and commit it to memory. Sometimes we look at our Christian lives and if you're like me, you get frustrated. You're trying to live a life of faith and please God. But you say, you know what? Every time I try to do my best, I keep tripping up with X or I finally get X whipped. And then all of a sudden there's Y. Look at Philippians one and verse six, though. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. He that began a good work in you will complete it or fulfill it in the day of Jesus Christ. According to Paul, you and I will not be finished until we see the finisher. According to Paul, working on yourself as a Christian is a good thing, but we won't be completed until God completes us. When you are struggling with yourself, beating yourself up because you don't think you're enough or you've done enough or you've been well behaved enough, you need to remember Philippians 1 and verse 6. God won't be finished with us until we look him in his face. And Paul says he will finish what he starts. God is not done with us. He wants to build us up. And Philippians 1, 6 will remind us of that. We sometimes say seeing is believing, but according to an NPR interview, saying is believing. 
they say you can engage in positive self-talk to change your life. They looked at two neurologists in a study they did in 1911 when women used to wear those large hats when they walked into buildings and they would have to take them off and duck down to get into those buildings. They said some of the women that wore those hats, they got so accustomed to wearing them, even when they weren't wearing the hats, they ducked in when they went into the buildings. Because though the physical self wasn't wearing the hat, the mental self still was. And they said you can take that same idea because we have control over our minds. And they said if you engage in positive self-talk, it'll change you. They suggest making up things to make yourself feel better and give you more confidence about who you are. But what Paul gives us isn't false positive self-talk. It's actually true. Paul says in verse six, I am confident of this very thing. Question, are you? That he that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Are we confident that he's still working on us and he's not through with us? In Philippians four and verse eight, Paul says, whatever things are true and honest and just and lovely and of good report, think on these things. Think on Philippians one and verse six things. God's still working on you. He's not done with you and he won't be done. Notice the last part of the verse until the day of Jesus Christ. That means God, we're his workmanship, we're his handiwork and perfection takes time and God won't be through with us until we meet him. Here's the next verse. Nahum one and verse seven. Now, the minor prophets can be easily forgotten. I know some of you are like, where is Nahum? But we're just going to go with it tonight. okay? we don't have time to find it. But Nahum 1 and verse 7 says the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. It's a verse to remember, to commit to memory, to build up our faith. Who is God? The Bible says the Lord is good in Nahum 1 and verse 7. Have you ever thought about why the Bible says so many times that God is good? It's no doubt because so much of the world is trying to convince us that he's not. Psalm 25 and verse eight. Good and upright is the Lord. Why does your Bible over and over again tell you that God is good? Because the world's trying to tell you he's actually not good. The first thing the devil does in the Garden of Eden is try to question the goodness of God with Adam and Eve. God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open. You'll be wise. You'll be like God's knowing good and evil. But God's not good enough to give you what's best. And Nahum one and verse seven says, remember, the Lord is good. And he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who seek refuge in him. God knows. That means God looks in at my life and he sees me living by faith, not relying on myself. He sees you doing your best to serve him. He knows those who've made him their ultimate refuge. And God loves people like that. We ought to quote this verse and remember it and remind ourselves God is good. He's a refuge in the day of trouble. And he knows that I have my ultimate trust in him. He knows I don't have a spiritual plan B. God is my all and in all. And because of that, my faith will be stronger. Here's the next verse. First John three and verse 20. We mentioned this in one of the Romans classes, and there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that are given to build up our faith about our salvation. But there's hardly one better and stronger than what you find in first John three and verse 20. John is writing to Christians so that they might know that they have eternal life and that our joy might be full. And in first John three and verse 20, John says, this is what we know. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and God knows all things. Anybody that's ever been saved, that is saved, ever feel like they're not saved. First John three and verse 20 is our verse. First John three and verse 20 says, If we condemn ourselves, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. We sing the songs. I know in whom I have believed. I know I'm living by faith. And yet there are days when I feel like I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm in right standing with God. First John 320 should build up our faith because what first John three and verse 20 says is God is the one who will pronounce the final verdict on your soul and not you and not me. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but in the state of Kentucky, anybody in this room that is not a minor can make what they call a citizen's arrest. If you see somebody practicing a felony and you believe the person you're about to arrest is committing a felony. So just make sure you got it right before you cuff somebody. But here's the facts. God will not allow anybody to make a citizen's arrest on their own soul without his permission. When Paul says, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. More than that, he's been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. God will not let anybody condemn his children, not even themselves. 1 John 3 and verse 20 says, if our hearts condemn us, if your heart says you're guilty, you're a sinner, you're not saved, God's greater than our heart and knows all things. God's the one who pronounces us justified and vindicated and forgiven, even if our hearts want to try to convince us otherwise. First John three and verse 20 is a verse to commit to memory, to remind us of who we are and where we stand with God so that we might be able to reach out to others with the confidence in the salvation we have. Number next, Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 is a powerful verse to keep our faith built up as Isaiah is speaking Old Testament Israel. And notice the way Isaiah phrases this. He says, do not be afraid for I'm with you. Fear not. I'm the Lord your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The God we serve is there to strengthen us and build us up. And Isaiah 41 and verse 10 is a verse to commit to memory, to remind ourselves that God is on our side. Anybody ever been to the store recently and tried to pay with cash? You know, it's this little green thing we used to use to pay for things. And you go in there and you get frustrated. If you give somebody cash today, sometimes people don't know what to do without the calculator. And you can get extremely, you go in and your total is 10-10, you give them 20-10 and they say, wait a minute, you gave me too much money. And they want to give it back to you. And you're in that situation and you're thinking, this is simple math. 10-10, I gave you 20-10, I get $10 back. And you're reasoning with yourself, can this person count? Can they do math? And perhaps somebody familiar with the scriptures would look at frantic and fearful Christians and say, can you count? In view of what the Bible says, God plus anybody is the majority. And if you believe Isaiah 41 and verse 10, which really reads like an anthem, as God says in three lines back to back, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do we believe that? According to that verse, it has never just been us. It's always been God with his people. Surely what Nebuchadnezzar could see through the fire, we can see by faith. Nebuchadnezzar said, we threw three in the fire. And the people said, oh, yes, king. He says, but I see a fourth. And the fourth one walking around seems like the son of God. Daniel 3, 24 and 25. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 reminds us that we're in the grasp of almighty God. He will strengthen us, help us and uphold us with his righteous right hand. Here's the next one. Second Timothy one and verse 12. This one should be easy because we just sung it a moment ago. These this verse is actually committed to song. And it's the song Jeremy led us in a moment before we started this sermon. And Paul says in that verse, for the which cause, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It's a faith building verse. Paul doesn't say, I know the one in whom I have believed in, though that would be important. Paul says, I know the one and whom I have believed. Every Christian needs to believe in God. We can't please God if we don't believe that he exists. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. But that is not what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. When Paul says, I know whom I have believed, he's not saying I believe God exists. He's saying I actually believe God. It's one thing to believe in God, but it's another thing entirely to believe God. 
It's what Paul does on the boat in Acts 27 and verse 25 when he tells the people, I believe that everything's going to happen just the way that God told me. We ought to sing this verse, but we also ought to live this verse. I know whom I have believed. It's kind of like Will Ferrell in the movie Elf. You remember when he hears Santa is coming and he says, I know him. I know him. That's Paul's spirit in this verse. Paul's been through a lot of things in his life. And Paul believes that when they behead him while he's under Roman imprisonment, Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded. I'm not fading off into non-existence. He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What has Paul committed? His very life. And he believes that God will hold him fast. Here's number nine. It's Job 23 and verse 10. In the heart of Job's suffering, Job said a lot of foolish things, but in the heart of Job's suffering, he also said a lot of faith-filled things, and this is one of the things that Job says. In Job 23 and verse 10, Job's friends didn't believe him. Job's friends said that he had sinned and done terrible things, and that's why he was suffering. But in Job 23 and verse 10, Job says, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. When you and I are going through it, we should remember it is just that. We are going through it. What if this verse was on our lips and in our hearts when we were struggling and maybe at our worst or at our wits end like Job? And what if we knew Job 23 and verse 10? God knows the way that I take. That is the way of faith. I'm not quitting God. And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. See, Job didn't look at his life and said, I will wince forever. Job believed he would win forever. He would come forth as gold, meaning his life was going to be better on the other side. Verses like this build our faith when we're thinking about surrendering. God knows the way that I take and hardship and suffering. It won't ruin me. It'll refine me. And Job says, I'm coming out on the other side of this thing better. I don't know what you're going through tonight, but I'm sure there's somebody who's in the furnace of fire. And you need to know he knows the way that you're taking. He knows you're singing the songs, you're praying the prayers, you're reading the passages. And I am sure of this. On the other side, you're going to come out like gold. Every one of us, in the end, we will come out of the other side like gold. And Job spoke these words first, but we need to speak them as well and speak them often. Here's the last verse for tonight. Number 10. It's John 19 and verse 30, and maybe, maybe the easiest one, and still perhaps the most important one. After Jesus had tasted the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. John, Jesus on the cross, he says seven different things. We talk about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And this is one of them. As Jesus is suffering for the sins of the world, what Jesus says in this moment is it is finished, meaning it has been finished. It's a done deal. And this verse builds our faith because it reminds us that God has already taken care of the biggest problem in our lives. Jesus didn't say in John 19 and verse 30, I am finished. No, he said it is finished. What's finished? The reign of sin in the lives of his people. Death's reign on the human race. The separation between God and man. It is finished. It's finished. Jesus is a finisher. John 17 and verse 4, he said to the Father, I finished the work that you gave me to do. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, and it reminds us, if we're going to be his students, his understudies, his disciples, then you and I have to be finishers as well. We can't quit short. Jesus has finished the work God gave him to do. That means God doesn't need you to be the Messiah, and he doesn't need me to be the Messiah. That work is finished. But the work that we're called to do as disciples of Jesus Christ it won't be finished until Jesus returns. This verse will build our faith when we remember Jesus did what he promised to do for us. And every one of us needs to do what we promised for him.
Those are the verses. The Bible was meant to be read, but the Bible was also meant to be memorized. This year at Lehman Avenue, it's our goal to live by faith. So how about it? What if you take these 10 verses? What if we take these 10 verses and we memorize them word for word? And depending on the circumstance or the life station we find ourselves in, we just reach into our mental and spiritual catalog and we just call one up. I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous abandoned or a seed begging for bread. Had a bad day, but I'm confident of this. He that began a good work in me will fulfill it in the day of Jesus Christ. I don't feel too saved today. I don't feel too good. If our hearts condemn us, God's sovereign. He's greater than my heart. He knows all things. And just about the time we think about quitting and giving up on him, John 19:30, it is finished. And that means I have to go through to the end. I think it's great to have a Bible on your phone with all different types of translations, a Bible in every room of the house. But without doubt, the best place to keep your Bible is in your heart, because there nobody can take it from you. Let's live by faith. We can do this. Christians need to memorize scripture and non-Christians need to encounter scripture so that they might know that Jesus is exactly who the scriptures testify him to be, the Christ, the son of God. And maybe tonight you haven't ever put your faith and trust in Jesus, but based on the inspired testimony of the New Testament, we know he's the Messiah he claimed to be. He died for your sins. He finished his work and was raised again for your justification. If you believe that, you want to become a Christian tonight, we'd be happy to assist you in obedience to the gospel. You can rise to walk in newness of life and give your life, your entire mind over to serving God. Jeremy's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If you need to respond to the invitation for any reason, come now as together we stand and as we sing.